And in my mind, we're solving one of the ch most challenging problems, which is the user experience. I, you know, I would go out on a limb and say the user experience for a soldier on the battlefield is the most difficult environment to build for. The, the bar is the highest, you know, because right. the realities are so specific and the stakes are so unbelievably high that, if, you know, if you drop the ball in one area of the user experience, and I mean the totality of the, the experience of the user when they're using our system, not just for software, just for hardware, but the totality of what it's like to use. That to me is the hardest problem. And I think that's what we're really uniquely positioned to solve for. And, yeah. and in doing so, we will naturally in my opinion, become sort of one of the platforms that will enable this future battlefield to really emerge. Welcome to the Driving Force podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. In this podcast, I'll be unraveling the stories of high performers across sports, business, and wellness. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Jake Bullock. Jake is the founder and CEO of Raven, an augmented reality company building next-generation technology for military personnel. Their platform, built from the ground up for use on the front lines, delivers mission-critical intelligence to service members when they need it most. The inspiration for Jake to start Raven came from his experience as a Navy SEAL. On his first deployment to Iraq and Afghanistan, Jake made a mistake on the battlefield as a result of poor information. That mistake weighed pretty heavily on Jake, and after several more deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, he knew that he had to solve this problem of poor information and communication on the battlefield. In this interview, we get into why Jake wanted to become a Navy SEAL, his time in the SEAL teams, human performance as an operator versus an entrepreneur, and all things Raven. And so, without further ado, my interview with Jake Bullock. So maybe to start, can you just maybe just quickly run through where you grew up and what sparked your interest in joining the military? Yeah, sure. Uh, grew up in Exeter, New Hampshire, uh, of course, close to where you are right now. Yeah. Uh, there at 18 to join the military. And I... I had had a long time interest in joining the SEAL teams. My dad was a fighter pilot. He just, you know, okay. missed Vietnam. He was uh, right after Vietnam ended. He uh, he graduated flight training, uh, flew F4s and then A10s. Uh, but that was way before you know I was I was born. And it was he's not he was never really a a you know military type guy. We didn't have like a militaristic family. But I had an early interest in being a fighter pilot like him. And then. And then I remember seeing a documentary on the SEAL teams and, and probably, geez, I don't know how old I was. I was, I was pretty young, but uh, maybe around eight to 10. And from that point on, I was, I was hooked and, you know, consumed every piece of every book, every movie, everything I could about teams. And that was kind of what I was focused on all throughout high school. Okay. But were you considering other branches of the military or when you kind of saw that first documentary, it was like, it was a done deal for you? Yeah, it was pretty much a done deal at that point. Like I said, I, I kind of wanted to follow in my dad's footsteps early on, but then I saw the, the documentary and I, I remember very distinctly, there's this scene where the seals are coming up out of the water and it's dark and they're, they're boarding a ship and the voiceover is talking about how divorce rates are high and how, you know, how it's a really difficult lifestyle and, you know, it takes a, a rare individual to do it. And I remember looking at it being like, God, that looks like it's miserable. <laughs> uh, I don't think I'd ever want to do that. And then I remember this voice in the back of my head was like, you're going to be a Navy SEAL because you just said that. And, you know, sure <laughs> enough, 
like a month later, I was like, maybe I do want to do that. <laughs> and yeah. that kind of, so that, that really hooked me. Yeah. And how, remind me, how, how old were you at that time when you like committed, like decided like, yeah, I'm going to go this route. I, I would say it sort of started my obsession probably when I was eight to 10, somewhere around there. Okay. Pretty young. Yeah. That's as young. You know, it kind of, that, that obsession never really faded and mm-hmm. everything I did throughout, you know, middle school and high school was kind of oriented around becoming a SEAL and that was kind of just always on my mind, you know, from yeah. very young. Yeah. So as, as you got into high school and, and in high school, how did you, you know, tr- train and prepare for BUDS, the SEAL training? Sure. So, you know, I was very aware. I'd read everything you could read about SEAL training and, and, and knew how difficult it was. Talked to some folks about it too. And, and, you know, I, I, I knew that, you know, one does not just get up off the couch and go through SEAL training, you know, after playing Xbox for, for high school, you know, uh, so <laughs> I, um, I wrestled all throughout high school and a little bit in, in oh, cool. school. Uh, and I didn't do it because I, I liked it. In fact, I hated it. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> it was, I, I dreaded it. I mean, I, when we would start these wrestling seasons, I would enter seasonal depression. You know, it was bad. <laughs> I liked some of the competitive elements to it, of course, you know, but, but I just didn't like the practice of anything related to wrestling. Uh, but I knew that I had to, you know, go through the most rigorous physical training regimen that I possibly could and wrestling offered that. Yeah, that's uh, it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and this was before, like, I mean, there wasn't in my town, there wasn't any kind of mixed martial arts or anything like this, anything like that. You know, this was kind of before UFC and all that, but uh, yeah, so I, I did that and I did it year round and went to some of the more challenging summer camps out there for wrestling and, you know, uh, some of them I had no place being in and I just got the shit kicked out of me the whole time, but <laughs> I figured that, that that was the value I was getting out of it, you know? So yeah, uh, that's really, that's, that's really what I did. And I, like I said, okay. I hate when I did it cause I knew it was going to prepare me. Yeah. Yeah. My, um, a few of my cousins, cousins wrestled and I got a couple of buddies who also wrestled in high school and that's like, or from what I hear the most, the practices are the most intense out of like any of the, I guess, high school sports they can go is, is wrestling so it throws in this um this other really brutal element which is not only are you working out you know really really hard all day every day um or doing two days or whatever it is but you're also uh dieting or in, in my case just not eating for days at a time i didn't do it to help <laughs> you do like you know, maintain a strict diet all year round i would i would sort of binge and starve and binge and you know so i i was you know making it worse on myself but it just adds another mental element to how difficult the whole sport is that, that other sports I don't think have as much. Yeah. Plus like it's, you're in, you're in fight or flight too in the, in the wrestling matches. Cause it's literally, you know, a fight. Yeah, no, it is. It yeah. is. It definitely is. So, yeah. I mean, it prepared me well though. I learned when I got there that the highest percentage of any group out there to make it through seal training was wrestlers. Oh, interesting. Okay. Oddly enough, the second highest, I believe, was surfers. <laughs> I wouldn't guess that. I guess people water. You know. Yeah, that, that must be it, honestly. Yeah, uh, that is, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So as you're getting to buds, like, what was your mindset going in? Uh, it was just kind of that this is going to suck really bad for six, eight, nine months, whatever it was. But... I was going to do it or they, they were going to wheel me out, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I didn't really think much of it, to be honest. It was just one of these things I had to get through. 
Uh, and I wasn't, I wasn't nervous about not making it. I wasn't, you know, I mean, I was nervous to go through all the pain and suffering and misery. And certainly that lived up to every ounce of its reputation. But <laughs> yeah, for me, it was just kind of, all right, let's hurry up and get this, get this over and done with, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And how did your actual experience of, of buds compare to what you thought it was going to be like going in? I'd say it was pretty accurate. I mean, I, you know, in, in terms of on paper, I sort of knew just about everything you could know going into it. Yeah. So there weren't any big surprises, but I mean, no matter how much you read about laying in the surf zone at two o'clock in the morning for 20 minutes when it's 60 degrees out, <laughs> you can, you can, you know, imagine how miserable that is, but of course nothing is like actually doing it. So, yeah. you know, um, the actual cold water is a lot colder than it sounded. And the, you know, the, the physical pain is a lot more painful, but other than that, I mean, I, I, I was, like I said, I was pretty prepared when I went in, I kind of knew what to expect. I, I was one of the younger guys. So I think one of the things I didn't know or, or appreciate at the time was my level of immaturity compared to a lot of the people there it was something I was going to have to work through. You know, I, I wasn't an idiot running around, but I just, you know, it was always sort of clear who the young. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So that was just, I mean, that was just kind of team dynamics, I guess, but. Right. Yeah. Um, did you graduate first time through? I did. I got rolled for an illness from one class back to the next. Uh, okay. I missed early dives. Um, but yeah, first time through. I was glad for that too. I have a lot of friends who, you know, made it second or third time. I couldn't imagine going back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. I guess throughout that experience, what are like looking back, what are your biggest takeaways or lessons learned from going through that training? I think for me, um, you know, I'd had the goal of being a SEAL since as long as I could remember. And I had, I felt like I had a good sense of, you know, self-control and that sort of delayed gratification where I was, I was wrestling, even though I hated it, I was doing all the things that I could do to prepare. And, you know, probably six years of, of sort of physical and mental preparation and another two or three years of really wanting to do it on top of that. And then to have it, you know, have it pay off and, and be able to actually like achieve that goal just kind of reinforced how important it was to be able to have that, that delayed gratification and, and have that self-control and do not what feels good right now, but what's going to benefit you down the road. Um, and I think that yeah. comes with just an acceptance of like, like just you're going to deal with a lot of pain. So I guess high pain <laughs> tolerance, you know, perseverance, grit, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, seeing how important that was for myself and for everybody else that made it through was a big thing. And then I think the other, the other point that got reinforced a lot throughout training and then throughout my time in the SEAL teams was how important self-awareness is, which doesn't get talked a lot or talked about a lot by most people. But, you know, some people that lack self-awareness just would have no concept of what they were or weren't doing to, to be successful, whatever it is that they're sort of striving after, you know? And so that, that was just a very reinforcing you know, um, th those two things were just very heavily reinforced throughout tra training and then, and then the rest of my career, you know? Yeah. Where, where do you think your, I guess, sense of delayed gratification comes from? Well, I, 
I, I don't really know, but I, I sort of think it has something to do with this sense of self-awareness. Like I wanted to be a SEAL, you know, let's just say eight years old. And I knew that unless I worked my ass off, I wasn't going to be in any kind of physical shape to actually go through SEAL training. And so it was sort of like an early on, like I identified a weakness and figured out a way to compensate for that. And, I, you know, it was, so I would say it was kind of a combination of self-awareness and then just drive and determination. I don't, I don't really, it's hard to, hard to know where that, that comes yeah, from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, sort of that, the grit or perseverance in my mind doesn't do much if you don't have that sense of self-awareness to be able to, you know, to be able to prepare and compensate for things that you're weak at and re reinforce things that you're good at. I mean, it's the same thing when you train for fighting or anything else, you know, you got to know what your strengths and weaknesses are and yeah. how to use those and, and compensate for them. So yeah, I, I think that's the best answer I can give you on that one. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a great answer. I completely, completely agree with it. I think, you know, it could, some of it might be due to DNA. I think we're, we don't fully understand ex the extent of how much our DNA impacts our decisions. So it, it could be yeah. that too, but yeah. yeah. And there's some, there's some unexplained there because some people have it and some people don't, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. So, so you, you get, you become a SEAL. Um, how many years were you actively in the SEAL teams and like, where did you get deployed to? So I was in the Navy for eight years. I, was in the SEAL teams for around six to seven. I don't remember exactly. I think I graduated BUDS, which is SEAL training in 04, 05 timeframe. And I went to SEAL team four on the East Coast and, and spent my time there and deployed three times to Iraq and once one quick uh, pump to Afghanistan. Okay. And so, what years were this or was this? I deployed my three deployments to Iraq were sort of my rotational deployments, which you would consider sort of like your rotation is sort of like a sports season where you train for 18 months, deploy for six months, then train for another 18 months. So my three rotational deployments were effectively September to March of 06 to 07, 08, 09, and then 2010 into 2011. And then for a few months in the summer of 09, I went over to Afghanistan. Okay. So you're really in the thick of <laughs> the, th the thick of things during the war. Yeah, especially yeah. my first deployment in 06 or 07. I mean, it was, it was like the wild west. Uh, yeah. I was in for that one and it was, things were, things were crazy, but it changed so much. My last deployment, you know, my first deployment, we would go out with 20 or 30 SEALs and a handful of partner force, like local Iraqi special ops guys. And, you know, we were packed to the teeth and, or, you know, we, we were armed to the teeth rather. And we were, uh, you know, very well supported by air assets and all sorts of stuff. And we had, you know, we'd go out with these like 10 vehicle convoys and it was crazy. I mean, nothing could inflict any real serious damage on us, you know, at that point. Uh, and then my last appointment, we would go out with four Americans and 10 or 15 partner force and some air assets, but they were highly constrained in what they could do. And it was just really because the environment had become so political that you know, it was all about sort of advising okay. us and we want to hand the mission back to the Iraqis, which you understand, you know, on one hand, but on the other hand, things go from, when you have 30 guys and one guy gets shot, there's no problem, throw them in the back of the truck and let's keep going, you know. When you have four guys and one guy gets shot, those three guys need to carry that injured dude. So things go from perfectly fine to catastrophic with one casualty. Right. So it's almost a much more dangerous operating environment. Interesting. Okay. What was your specialty? And the SEAL teams? So I was a sniper, and on my final 
final deployment because we were operating such small groups. I was actually the senior enlisted leader on a lot of these operations, which was oh, okay. yeah, way above my pay grade. But <laughs> experience nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So, you know, the, uh, as you know, the Navy's the SEALs are one of the highest performing team, or regarded as one of the highest performing teams and groups in the world. What are some of the things you learned around kind of optimizing your own performance uh, while you were serving and on deployment? Sure. I think that on sort of a higher level, what I really took away from, from the SEAL teams and I still apply it today was really like just understanding what it is that you need to be good at given your role or your job or your profession or your interests and optimizing for those really important, you know, elements of it. And that, the, the example I give is like in the SEAL teams, when I first joined, it was all about just being mentally hard, right? So you do these workouts, not because they were like necessarily going to benefit you on the battlefield, but just because it was, it was hard and you wanted hard dudes around you, you know, um, so <laughs> it's snowing out. Great. Let's go do a two mile ocean swim, you know, like just miserable stuff like that, that, you know, guys were optimizing for being hard and it was breaking guys over time. Cause when you do four mile ruck runs with a 45 pound ruck on, you know, three or four times a week, your body just doesn't, your body just can't sustain that. Right. And so, you know, the older SEALs, when I joined, were all broken. They all had hip and back injuries and they could barely operate. And what happened when I was in is they formed this human performance initiative to really study like, okay, what do SEALs actually need to be good at when they're on the battlefield? And the way they did this was they looked at a professional hockey team and rated them along all these different elements of like physical fitness. And then they compared it to the SEAL teams and they found that the SEAL teams were really good at certain things but really, really deficient in other things, right? Like how does doing a four mile rough run with 50 pounds on help you for, you know, jumping over a wall when you're in a mission or bounding upstairs or sprinting down an alleyway and then steadying yourself to take a shot. Like those two just, they don't reinforce each other, right? And so yeah. they put a lot of time and effort into understanding what are the actual physical requirements of the job and let's optimize the training cycles around that, right? And that leads to a healthier force. It leads to more sustained operations um, and just a, you know, a better, a better group of operators, right? With a, with a higher level of performance. And so what I sort of took away from that is know what you need to be good at and optimize for that, you know, and, and don't spend time worrying about a lot of the other stuff that's less important. And so as a yeah. founder, now, you know, I feel like I have to optimize for good decision-making and creativity. And that means effectively like mental clarity and regulating my emotions, not letting the ups and downs really affect me as, as, as much as they can. And so, you know, instead of working out as much now, I do a lot more meditation and I focus on sleep and, and just sort of letting my mind unplug and, and things like that, which, you know, may or may not include exercise, uh, but that's right. what I need to do to be good at my job, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. What, what surprised you the most overall about uh, being a Navy SEAL? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. I had a tough time coming up with a really positive answer for this one. I think that, <laughs> you know, I, I grew up sort of idolizing the, the SEALs for a long time. And, you know, they are viewed as one of the elite groups out there. And then when you join and you see how the sausage is made, sort of the, the sheen wears off pretty quickly. So I, I think I was just, you know, I came to a realization that no matter how how much training you have to go through or what the selection process is like or how elite the organization is viewed from the outside. There's a lot, the, the difference between good SEALs and bad SEALs is, is pretty significant gap there, you know? Um, and I think I was surprised at 
how many people were able to be bad seals and still stick around, you know? Hmm. And it's just, yeah. you know, you got that in every organization, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. That's definitely true. Yeah. That's interesting. How did, so how did being in the seal teams change your perspective on, I guess, life? I think for me, you know, I'd had the goal and I touched on this earlier. I'd had the goal since I was about eight years old and you know, it was viewed as largely inachievable by everybody around me, right? I mean, you know, everybody wants to be a SEAL or an astronaut or, you know, what have you. And yeah. so people want to become them that, you know, having that goal, working towards it for so long and putting myself just through, you know, misery for years, especially in my childhood where I wanted to be out partying and hanging with my friends and I couldn't. <laughs> uh, and then actually achieving that goal by the time I was 18, 19 was just a huge confidence boost for me. And I, I really, like I said, it really drove home that concept where if you put in enough time and effort and work and preparation, you, that gives you something to fall back on when things get rough and you're in the midst of it all. And, and you know, that if you, you, you apply that same model to anything you want to do in life, it will be successful, you know? So I, I, I really got out of the SEAL teams with a huge amount of confidence that, you know, I could, I could, you know, do whatever I wanted to set my mind to. You know, now, now I will caveat that and say that's paired with a healthy dose of, of self-awareness. So, you know, no matter how, how much I, you know, practice throwing footballs, I'm never going to be like Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers in football, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Right. That ability, but but uh, for things that I knew, I felt like I could be good at and I was really interested in post-seal career. I think that gave me a lot of confidence to, to achieve those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so as you transition out, like how, how was that transition like for you? I guess, back into civilian life. Yeah, it was, in some ways it was really easy. And in some ways it was really difficult. What made it really easy was that I was very, very focused on my next goal in life, uh, which, you know, was to found Raven. Okay. And, and I, I started to sort of wrap my head around that after my first deployment. And so I, you know, it's something that I've been wanting to do. I mean, that was probably seven so I've wanted to do it since I was seven. I punched out of the Navy in 2011. And I kind of took that same, like, okay, I know there's a lot of unknown unknowns out there. And the first goal is to figure out what I need to know in order to do this. And then learn that, all those things that I need to know. And so I was, I was very driven to do that. And I had a lot of motivation to go after this new goal. Uh, now where it became difficult was I, I just didn't know what I didn't know. I mean, I didn't, you know, I, I knew a bunch of bankers at the time, you know, guys that worked for like JP Morgan and Goldman and stuff on the trading floor. And, you know, the, those guys love hanging out with SEALs and I had a buddy who came from that, you know, that world. And right. So they were all like, Oh man, come, come to the bank, you know, work with us. It'll be awesome. You'll love it. And you'll meet some rich people <laughs> in the company, this, that, and the other. And I was like, yeah, cool. Sounds good. I mean, I, you know, I didn't know anything about tech or, BC or the startup world. Yeah, I know a bunch of s- former or retired SEALs in that in finance and VC, PE. <laughs> yeah, a, no, lot of them, I mean, a lot of them you, go there. Yeah, you just get funneled into there. Uh, there's a lot of like cultural overlap and, you know, a lot of reasons that, that that happens. But I got funneled in and within a couple of weeks of being at the bank during like a summer internship, I was like, okay, well, this is not the right way to start a company. You know, like, uh, <laughs> and, and at that time, I discovered some of the you know, media outlets out there that would help me get better at, under, at you know, uncovering the, the unknown unknowns. Um, and so I, I worked in the, the bank for a bit and then, um, and then actually left that. This is in between my, I think this is like sophomore to, to 
uh, junior year. I uh, left that internship at the bank and went right to work for a startup that my buddy was in. Not because I thought it was going to be successful, because I, but because I was like, I need to, I need to figure out what this whole startup thing is all about. And I'm not going to, if I graduate in two years with a, a degree in economics from Columbia, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do well, you know, because <laughs> I won't have anything to eat. So I didn't even know what they were at the time. So anyway, I went to work at that startup to figure out what it was that I needed to learn. And then, you know, did that for about a year and a half and went back to school and then switched my major to computer science, focused on the technology that was relevant for Raven, you know, build, build relationships in the business school and, and started taking classes, even if I wasn't allowed to, um, just to, just to educate myself on the whole process. So, and, and okay. I had the, the drive and the motivation, again, going back to your question, which, which made it easy, but just to, you, you know, I was completely lost when I got out and it was a bit of a circuitous route to get to where I am, but it was just, you know, you know, it, it took some time, but I eventually got there, but that was the challenging part. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you mentioned, so, so did you, did you go to Columbia right after you left the SEAL teams? Yeah. You went, yeah. went to college? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cause I, okay. you know, I joined in high school. I didn't, I didn't, right. I didn't know anything about, I've been kicking indoors as a SEAL my whole life. I knew nothing about the private side. Right. Yeah. So that was obviously a, a critical part of my development. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what inspired you to start Raven? So, you know, four deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, operators and, and, and soldiers, like they find themselves on the battlefield in these crazy dynamic, chaotic environments. And they're forced to make these like split second decisions that could have catastrophic outcomes. And you're doing it based off limited information and, you know, the proverbial fog of war is blanketing everything and everybody's really disoriented and you're operating off a combination of fear and stress and training and, you know, what the larger context is for why you're there and what the mission is. And, and you know, you end up having to make these decisions and sometimes they're the right decisions and sometimes when the dust settled, you realize they were, they were the wrong decisions. Um, and I had one particular instance on my first deployment where, you know, I, I made the wrong decision. I made a mistake and it certainly weighed very heavily on me. I don't know if I knew it at the time, but I think that was a really pivotal point where I was like, Hey, if we had better information while we're on the battlefield, we'd be able to make more informed decisions and these types of things would not happen. And I didn't, you know, took a long time for that to sort of gestate into an idea for me, but right. You know, that, 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 that's where it started. That was sort of the impetus for it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've, I've sort of carried that with me. I did, you know, after that first deployment, I did three more deployments and, and then left the Navy and I was in 2011, like I said, and I was, I was 100%, I have to solve this problem. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, robots fighting all the wars for us probably isn't going to come anytime soon. <laughs> Not as soon as people would like, that's for sure. Yeah. May just for the people listening, provide a brief overview of kind of Ra of Raven and how it stands today. Sure, sure. So I founded Raven in early 2017, and my my initial premise was that you know information right now is passed via voice on the radio. Or, sorry, via voice through the radio on the battlefield, right? Which you can imagine in the middle of a firefight, if somebody's trying to talk to you on the phone, it's a really bad way to send it. Like, it's just horribly inefficient in a lot of ways. And, you know, I would wear a 10-pound helmet with night vision goggles and all this technology on my face. And for me, I was like, why the, 
why the hell do I not have any information that I need floating out in front of me where I can comprehend it, I can detect it quicker, I can comprehend it quicker. It's just more efficient, right? And it's done in software and there's so many advantages to that. So, so my focus was always on building a heads up display. Okay. And you can use it for communication. You can use it for you know controlling drones and robots as they do come out. You can use it for situational awareness for a lot of different you know jobs, if you will, on the battlefield. Uh, and so you know what we what we tell people now is we're effectively building Slack for the battlefield. We're allowing soldiers to communicate through a software-based platform. Uh, and in order to do that, it's very software-defined, as they say, but it requires hardware because. You know, a, a tablet or a smartphone or a tough book just doesn't work for, for obvious reasons on the battlefield. So yeah. that's what we're doing at Raven. Um, we've been going for almost four years now, and we've, we've made a pivot or two along the way in, in this search for product market fit. And I, I think we finally, you know, with, with the traction of this new direction, which we've really, you know, solidified over the last six months, things have really started to pick up. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you say heads up display, like, I, you can tell me if I'm, and correct me if I'm wrong here. So would that be like a soldier would be wearing like a helmet and then there'd be like a screen in front of their face and they would get like visual information from that screen, like projected on that? Is that what that would be like? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're not public uh, yet with any, any of the information on our product, but yeah, effectively exactly what you described is, mm -hmm. um, you know, some way to present information, whether it's a clip onto your night vision goggles or it's a, a visor that's integrated into your helmet or- right classes or something like that, some way to present information to an operator when they're on the battlefield, you know, just, just to allow them to, to, to just grab that information much more quickly than if it came over the radio. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. I didn't realize until doing research for, for this interview that there are a lot, like so many private companies building technology for military personnel. Like, I feel like, I don't know, the DOD and the special ops community would always be on the cutting edge and constantly looking at ways to innovate um, technology for like their active person or military personnel. Like, is that not the case? And did you find that to not be the case? So it is definitely not the case. Uh, I mean, they are so far behind. It's, it's, it's almost, I mean, it's, it's almost scary when you think about it. Um, <laughs> wow. Okay. But it's not because they don't try. I mean, they invest a huge amount of money. They've got uh, huge organizations you know, whose whole purpose is just to innovate and find creative technology they can hand to the warfighter. Uh, the, the real, there are a couple of big drags on it. I mean, there's, there's a laundry list of problems with sort of the, you know, acquisition process with the DOD, the product acquisition process. But I mean, the biggest thing that, you know, the politicians and, and the DOD folks are trying to unravel right now is just this really archaic and sort of arthritic acquisition system where the bureaucracy alone will take you two years to sign a contract that, you know, could only require right. nine months of work, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> that's one reason things are so slow. And, you know, and an, another problem with, with the DOD, and this is something that we learned early on, well, we learned, I would say fairly recently, not early on, but is the DOD has a really hard time adopting disruptive technologies. And there's a very concrete reason for that. It's, it's not because they don't want to innovate and think outside of the box, but it's because just the nature of, of what the DOD does is you train for so long before you ever deploy. And when you train, you go through all the tactics and all the, all the procedures that you've developed from decades of combat experience. You know, and what's informed those tactics are all the lives that have been lost, right? The lessons learned from well, why did so-and-so get shot when we did this? Well, we did, you know, it happened because of, of this particular tactic. And then you identify the weakness and then 
you you change up the tactic to accommodate that. And, and when you introduce a new, a really disruptive piece of technology, there's a lot of suspicion when it comes to adopting it because if you have to reorganize your tactics around it, you, you don't know if it's going to be successful, but you do know that you're going to make mistakes when you do that. And people are going to get killed potentially because you've got this new tactic that you're trying out that you've never used before, you know, and you can mitigate some of that in training, but ultimately, you know, where the rubber meets the road and where people start paying attention is when lives are lost overseas. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, you, you can't just dream up this incredible new technology and deploy it to the battlefield because, you know, it'd be like, you know, some football team practices their playbook for the entire season. And then right before the Super Bowl, they throw out the playbook and bring in a new one. And they're like, okay, guys, go ahead. You know, it's, it's never going to work out well. And so, you know, the DOD sort of has this natural tendency to just really want to in- adopt incremental gear uh, and technology just because of that reason where you can't, you can't just change everything, you know, the night before and off and expect guys to be receptive to it, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they are, they are making progress. It, it is now very, very possible for startups to work with the DOD. It's still not perfect. There's still a lot of challenges. You really have to know the customer and understand the market. But now that you can go out and actually raise venture capital, you can sort of offset some of those cash flow problems that come with, you know, years long, you know, contracting procedures in order to get you a couple million bucks, you know. So mm-hmm. now that VC is available, it's, it's, it's a very viable market for, for founders and for investors to, to uh, you know, see returns in. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe let's define some terms here before we go a little further. What, what is augmented reality and how does that, how does it apply to the technology you're building at Raven? Sure. So augmented reality, as we kind of know it in the Bay area denotes any device that is using SLAM, which is an algorithm that is used to map your environment, creates a, a virtual recreation of your environment. That way you can place an object within it and you could look away and then turn back to it and that object would still be there. Right. That's how, and, and that AR can be done through a smartphone. I mean, what is the uh, Pokemon Go is the is the app that everybody's obsessed with that it generates like probably 95% of the revenue for the entire AR market. Oh, really? <laughs> That's a huge percentage. So any, huh. any of these projections you see on augmented reality, it's basically if you remove Niantic and, and Pokemon Go, it would drop to like de minimis amounts of revenue. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of how, and, and that AR can happen in a smartphone, it can happen in a heads-up display or, a, or an AR headset like uh, Magic One or Microsoft HoloLens as the, you know, what, what is separate from AR, but is still, the DOD still uses the same term is more of like a heads-up display or a pair of smart glasses where there's no, there's no slam algorithm running, there's no detection of, you know, your environment or any, any fancy sensors or anything like that. It's just effectively a dumb display that's presenting information up in front of your face. Um, and so, you know, the, the DOD calls that augmented reality and it's, it's not really, it's not really in line with how the Valley calls it. Um, but as, as we think about how it relates to what we do, you know, in building Slack for the battlefield for, you know, a mobile, a mobile user, we've effectively had to look at all the components of the iPhone or a tablet and unbundle it, right? So you have the input side, which is the touch screen. You have the output side, which is that same display. You have connectivity, which is either, you know, what, Wi-Fi or LTE. You have, you know, a software layer that allows third-party companies to build to that. You know, it's a platform layer. It allows third-party companies to deploy a capability through that device, right? 
And so we've really had to unbundle that whole thing and rebuild it from the ground up for the warfighter, just because the battlefield is such a unique environment that a smartphone or any of these consumer devices just don't work, they're not practical. And right. you know, for us, augmented reality, as the DOD calls it, or just a pair of smart glasses or what have you, or a, a visor integrated to a, into a helmet, whatever it is, that's just for us the display endpoint. It's just a way to put that information up in front of the user. Um, and you know, we're pretty agnostic as to the devices we use. I mean, there's a lot of different initiatives out there. Some are integrated with night vision, some are integrated with contact lenses, which is pretty neat. Some are integrated with um, you know, smart glasses, uh, or there's you know, the Microsoft HoloLens of the world that are going after it. So, uh, but for us, it's, it's nothing more than just a display for, for the user. It just happens to be practical for the user given the realities of the battlefield. Right, okay. And now, if you talk to Microsoft, so for context, Microsoft has gotten a, you know, a huge amount of money, probably about $600 million to repurpose their HoloLens into a device that will work for a soldier. And if you talk to them, why okay. is AR relevant? They'll say, well, it's great because you can float all these icons out in front of a soldier and you can show them where the bad guys are and where the good guys are and where their nav waypoints are and all these other, you know, um, what seem like really cool features, you know, if you ever played Call of Duty or some of the first person shooters out there, but in practice with how, uh, how nascent the technologies are just wildly unreliable and not really practical at all for, for, you know, introduction to the battlefield just yet, maybe another five or 10 years, but yeah, so they might give you a different answer as to why AR is, is relevant. Huh. Yeah. And, and with that, what I'm thinking, they're thinking with that is like a, a red dot would be like on a bad guy and a blue, a blue dot would be like, on on your team is that like kind of yeah, what they're pretty much exactly what they're <laughs> yeah and i can I mean, imagine that that would be uh at least what with what we have right now pretty unreliable and uh, yeah not dangerous i guess dangerous yeah it is dangerous and and uh i mean there's so many reasons why something like that isn't practical uh on the battlefield and by the way it's not really practical yet in any other professional environment i mean point to a group of people that routinely use a HoloLens to accomplish anything. I mean, it might have like these niche applications for like designers and stuff, but uh, yeah. I don't, you know, the only people I know using a HoloLens are building an app for the HoloLens and then when they launch the app, nobody uses it. <laughs> so it's not even something that's been proven out in the civilian world yet. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's some folks out there who are convinced that it'll be the, you know, a game changing technology for soldiers. Okay. Can you provide like a theoretical use case of your technology on the battlefield and like a situation, how it might look? Sure, sure. So like I said, you know, if we're building Slack for the battlefield, we allow messages to be rapidly exchanged between humans, right? Uh, Warfighters. And one example where our stuff, I think would, would you know, provide, provide a lot of values is during what's called a, you know, a vehicle check-in, right? So. So in my experience, uh, especially in my first deployment in 06 in Baghdad, you know, we would do these raids at night, like you see, you know, in the movies or whatever, we'd go out looking for a bad guy. We'd find him, we'd, we'd do the whole op, you know, we'd, we'd secure the target building, we'd find the individual, we'd put him in custody. And then we would collapse our whole outer perimeter, which would be, you know, let's say 10 Humvees, right? And you line up all 10, 10 Humvees, which like I said, we're forming the outer perimeter in like a city, couple of city blocks, collapsing right in front of the target building or that area. 
so that everybody on the breakout call, everybody runs out of the target building, gets down from their high ground if they're a sniper or wherever they are, and they collapse, they get into the vehicles, and then you gotta make sure you've got everybody before you leave as a convoy, right? And so this, this headcount has to come from the last vehicle, you know, vehicle 10 up, five packs, vehicle nine up, four packs, vehicle, you know, eight up, and it has to all come over the radio. Now this can go really smoothly if you've got a small convoy, you're all really well-trained and everything is like pretty easy. It can happen fairly quickly, right? Just enough time for, you know, what half a dozen people to 10 people to come over the radio and give a radio call. Right. However, when, when you're in what's called a hot extract and there's a lot of shooting and your turret gunners, your 50 cal or your twin 240s are rocking and rolling, and you're, you're, you know, the, the people that are in the vehicles are shooting out of their windows and they're having rounds clink off their windshields and things like that. It goes from being like a really smooth operation to being incredibly chaotic. Everybody's super stressed the fuck out. You know, your, your prefrontal cortex is effectively shut down from the stress response and you're just operating on training. Guys will run out of the target building and they'll be disoriented and they'll see vehicle three and they're supposed to be on vehicle seven and they're like, where's vehicle seven? And they're like, it's back that way. You know what I mean? It's, it's just incredibly chaotic. And then once everybody piles into the vehicle, as you do this up from the rear call, from the lead navigator, it's effectively the convoy commander, right? Is in the lead, okay. nav, lead passenger seat, comes over the radio and says, hey, vehicle commander is the passenger of each vehicle. Let's give me a head count up from the rear. And you'll start at 10 and you'll work your way up, right? Well, that is A, if they heard that radio call, which they might not have, even if they're on the right radio channel, because you know their turret gunner is unloading on some guy who's shooting at them. And of course, that it's impossible to hear anything. Or two, you're just so stressed out that you don't get it anyway. Like if you're actively being engaged, you're not hearing radio calls because all your cognitive resources are focused on something in front of you. Um, or three, you could be just on the wrong radio channel. I mean, that happens all the time. Um, and so you're not getting any of the calls and you just forget to get back to the right channel. And so I've been sitting on the target area in a hot extract, waiting for uh, vehicles up from the rear being like, where the heck is vehicle seven? Somebody find vehicle seven. You know what I mean? For, for <laughs> longer than necessary because yeah. the radio calls weren't coming through. Oh, and by the way, when I get the radio calls, I have a grease pencil and I'm writing on the windshield vehicle 10 up, 10 or five packs, vehicle nine up, right? It's horribly inefficient. And people are literally killed because you're sitting on, on the target area and you're getting shot at and you can't get off, you can't get off the target area because you don't know if you have all your people, right? You could never just leave. And so with our system, We've got a little workflow built where with a couple of clicks, I can send out a message to everybody. They get it in their heads up display. It's super quick to, it's easy to detect even if there's gunfire or you're stressed out because it's just a little glanceable message. And then with one or two clicks, they can respond to it. And then boom, everything can happen asynchronously. You're not worried about people missing it for a whole host of reasons. And it's just way more efficient. And, you know, we had another guy in the army, a Lieutenant Colonel, tell us that they got hit by an IED when they were in Iraq. And they were trying to do, you know, hey, vehicles up from the rear. They were trying to get a head count. And it took them like 10 minutes and they couldn't figure out why. It wasn't until they got back and debriefed that they realized that their ears had blown out. And so nobody could hear anything. And so, of course, they can't communicate over the radio, right? So a, a system like ours would just allow them to leverage a lot of the efficiencies that just come with, A, software platforms, and B, visual communication, which just for a lot of ways is quicker to detect and comprehend information that comes your way, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's really cool. Are there any other like applications of your technology outside of the military that you're excited about? Yeah, th there definitely are. Um, there's applications in heavy industry. 
there's certainly applications in the first responder market and, uh, you know, um, right. folks that are in really dynamic situations where, you know, having a tablet or a smartphone to communicate via whatever text platform they're using isn't always practical. You know, we, we are right now laser focused on the DOD just because, the you know, that, that's, that's our mission as a company. That's where my passion is. And it's also, you know, it's also just a really unique environment. So we'd have to start with the DOD and then repurpose out. I don't think it would be feasible to start with another industry and repurpose in, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, th that makes sense for sure. And they've already tried to do that, by the way, by giving guys smartphones and they know it just doesn't work. <laughs> right, yeah, for sure. What's your ultimate vision for Raven? I think for me, I, I want to become, I want Raven to become one of the most important defense tech companies of the next generation, right? And when I say important, I mean, like when you think about, you know, the, the rise of the smartphone and, and how that changed everything, you know, everybody points to the individual applications as like, oh man, Uber changed the transportation industry or, you know, Zoom changed the, you know, whatever. Like there's, there's a lot of different really interesting areas or verticals that have been disrupted because of things that are built on and for the smartphone. And so the smartphone makes that all possible, you know, and, and it's really the, the software layer of that, of the smartphone. So same thing for an operating system on windows or, so I, I really think that where we fall in the value chain will make us very analogous to that smartphone uh, or that software layer. And that will be necessary for a lot of these other modernization efforts to, to come to fruition, right? You, you'll need a, a, a single user interface if you're going to deploy a hundred different types of drones to the battlefield. Right, you can't you can't do it with individual controllers for each each individual drone. Right, that doesn't scale. So when I yeah. say important, that's sort of what I mean. Is that where we're, that that's where we would fall in the value chain? And in my mind, we're solving one of the ch most challenging problems, which is the user experience. I, you know, I would go out on a limb and say the user experience for a soldier on the battlefield is the most difficult environment to build for. The the bar is the highest. You know, because right. the realities are so specific, and the stakes are so unbelievably high that it's you know, if you drop the ball in one area of the user experience, and I mean the totality of the, the experience of the user when they're using our system, not just for software, just for hardware, but the totality of what it's like to use, that to me is the hardest problem. And I think that's what we're really uniquely positioned to solve for. And, yeah. and in doing so, we will naturally, in my opinion, become sort of one of the platforms that will enable this future battlefield to really emerge. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. There's no room for a clunky, <laughs> clunky interface on the battlefield. No, I mean they they poured a hundred. They poured literally billions of dollars into trying to solve kind of the problem that that we're in, the problem space that we're in, over the last couple of decades, and they've come up zero with zero every time. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a real challenging environment to build. Yeah, yeah. What are the biggest lessons about entrepreneurship that you've learned so far in building Raven? Ooh, uh, that's a good one. Um, I think, you know, my own personal point of growth, I mean, I, we talk a lot, I, I talk a lot about like personal or self-awareness and sort of personal introspection and things. I think for me, what I had to become really, really good at that I was really, really bad at was storytelling. You know, I, that's everything you do as a founder. And that came very, that, that's just not something we do in the SEAL teams. I mean, regardless of how many books and movies are out there, um, right. you know, Fortunately, it, the, the, the motto is quiet professional, right? You, mm -hmm. you know, you don't advertise the nature of what you do and you don't, don't oversell yourself, right? And that was just ingrained in me from a very young age. And so breaking that habit with investors and with 
with potential employees and you know all the different areas in which I enforced to just tell the story over and over again. That was something that I really had to work on personally. You know, I think some of the other things that, you know, I, I went into this knowing that I knew nothing about any of the individual disciplines required to make this a reality, make our product a reality. I mean, I did get a degree in computer science, but I did it largely so I could speak the language, not because I'm writing code. Um, and so, you know, finding the right people that can bring the right qualities that you need on your team for that particular discipline. And that will help inform ultimately the culture of the organization as it grows, you know, was, um, was also just the biggest kind of, I mean, I kind of knew intellectually that I had to do that, but really what that means is, you know, the difference between an A player and a B player is enormous. And yeah. that can be between a successful company and an unsuccessful company. And so it was sort of, it's been a steep learning curve to really identify for every discipline we have on the team, what are the good things that we need? What are the qualities that we need in individuals like that? And, and how can we go out and find those people? And it's hard to find them when you're an early stage startup working on what I would consider a fairly niche you yeah. know, product, niche in the, in, in, in the way that it won't appeal to everybody, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You're not another email marketing software company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Uh, we're getting to these last handful of questions here. I noticed on your Twitter profile that says you're a history lover, but pissed at where it's gotten us. Can you expand on that? Yeah. I, you know, I, I love ancient history. I read a lot about the Romans and, you know, Genghis Khan and the Mongols. And, and it's really fascinating. The, the, what I've taken away the most is that some of these more advanced societies were, were like proto-modern societies, you know? I mean, when you, when you read about the political debates they were having back 2,000 years ago with the Roman Republic, it was the exact same stuff that we're dealing with today, like income inequality and immigration and, you know, uh, all, all the same challenges that we deal with as a society. And it just kind of pisses me off that we haven't found a better solution after, you know, <laughs> thousands of years of, of arguing about the same stuff, you know? Right. Um, so, you know, but I am very much a believer in, in sort of the evolution of cultures and, and people. And, you know, I do, I do believe we're all, we're all moving in the same direction, but it's, it's not happening as fast as it could. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly not promising with what we've seen with COVID too. Yeah. That's very true. Very true. Yeah. What does your daily routine look like? Oh, um, I, you know, contrary to what most people I think think about me, I'm, I'm less of the disciplines type and more of like sort of the creative type. Uh, and it's taken me a long time to kind of wrap my head around that. So I'm not one of these like up at 4 a.m. doing a workout, doing this, you know, drinking you know, eating four ounces of chicken breast and, you know, I'm, that's not my, that's not how I kind of operate. I mean, I, I'm probably up around seven. Uh, I, I don't sleep super well these days. So sometimes that, that leaves a little late, later, but I, I try to get into early meditation. That doesn't always happen. And then I, you know, I'll work for 10 to 12 hours. And then I try to give myself some time at the end of the night to unplug and unwind. And that can be challenging. And it's not even that if I'm working the whole time, it's just, you know, my mind is always on Raven. And so it's right. I stop working for the evening and still be thinking about Raven the entire night. So uh, I, tr I try to find space to unplug, but it's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So as is the name of the podcast, the driving force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? I think for me, if I was to put a couple of tent poles in my life, it would just be like, I've had two goals my whole life and 
one was to be a seal. That was the first one. And the second one was to build Raven and to make this a success and make it an important company. And more importantly, solve the problems that I experienced on the battlefield for these guys. Um, and I think just the amount of preparation that I put into each one of those, you know, I mean, I wanted to be a seal for about 10 years before I actually became a seal. I wanted to start Raven. I mean, I started thinking about it back in those six or seven. You know, I got out of the SEAL team for, so that's maybe four years, three, four years there, and then went to Columbia and prepared for another, you know, five years. And so it was a lot of preparation and a lot of just putting myself, learning what I needed to learn and putting myself in the right situation to, to bring it to fruition. And so far I've been able to do that successfully. I think you know, it kind of gets back to that delayed gratification and just having the discipline and the control to be like, this is, this is the most important thing in my life. And, you know, for better or for worse, everything else is organized around that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can be, you know, that has its pros and its cons, but, um, but yeah, I, I think for me, it's just kind of like, I've always had the privilege or the, you know, the advantage of, of being very driven and having two very, very distinct defined goals and being able to sort of labor in, 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 in an effort to achieve those. And, you know, taking a lot of preparation, a lot of pain to get there, but you know, so, so far that's, it's paid off. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And then lastly here, before we wrap up, what parting words of wisdom or advice would you like to leave the aspiring entrepreneur listening? I think, and I, I brought this up a couple of times, but just being self-aware to me is, is a huge determining factor in whether or not somebody's successful. Uh, and that like, when it comes to, founding a company, it's like, first thing you got to do, do sorry, is, is know what your strengths are and know what your weaknesses are. And for things that you're bad at and you need to be really good at, then you need to find a way to become good at them, whether it's a coach or a mentor or an investor. And for things that you don't need to be good at, then you've got to hire somebody to compensate, you know, for those weaknesses. And I think that sense of introspection and self-awareness will really permeate the company if you do it right. You know, I mean, just like all the idiosyncrasies of a founder are manifested throughout the company and, you know, they hire, you, you tend to hire people that have the same qualities as you. And so regardless of what discipline, they'll bring in the same, you know, positive and negative qualities. And so right. self-awareness is a huge one that I've put a lot of effort in uh, to, to making sure that we hire for. And that so far is, has really paid off. And just, you know, the company, we are just, you know, you're constantly when you're, you know, we were, we've been in the search for product market fit for a long time. And when you're in that search, you're constantly getting feedback from different parts of the market. And a lot of times the feedback is, no, this is awesome. You know, and it's up to you to read between the tea leaves and be like, well, they said <laughs> it's awesome, but nobody's buying it. Why is that? You know? Right. So we've had to be just brutally honest and, and, you know, read the tea leaves and come to, come to, come to Jesus on a lot of these things. And it's been, it's, you know, it's a painful process. You kind of want to hold to, you know, we're getting good feedback, guys. You know, this is it. But ultimately, if they don't bust out their checkbook, it's not the feedback you need. So, yeah, uh, you know, just that that real deep sense of there's nothing that's taboo in the company. There's nothing that we can't talk about. We can't address. Everything needs to be addressed and resolved to the extent that it can be. And you know, that that is with our personnel. It's with how we operate. It's how we communicate. And it, you know, it, for me, it's all the product decisions that we make. You know, so. So I think, you know, that level of self-awareness, if it can permeate the company, can, can pay dividends. Awesome. That's a great place to end. Jake, thanks again for coming on the show.
Yeah, my, my pleasure, Chase. It was great to be here. I'm sorry I, I uh, have a, a dead stop here, but. Okay. Yeah, no, no worries at all. Where can people go if they want to find you online and learn more about Raven? Uh, I'd say Twitter. Uh, we have, you know, raven.com is up, R-A-V-N, but it's, it's, it's pretty sparse. It's just kind of a landing page. Like I said, we're still being private about what, what it is that we're building and that'll change in the next probably year. But right now, um, Twitter, if you want to connect, or, you know, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, chaserosa.com, and follow me, follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks, everyone who's listening, and see you next time.